Oh, Lord, how great a blessing, how pleasant it is when the brethren dwell together in unity. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather around your word, to sing your praises, to come together with the body and cast our anxieties upon you. Oh, Lord, might you be glorified in our every thought and every action. Might we each grow in the grace and knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, in this time. And above all else, as we go into this study, might we be ready to abandon all of our false sources of confidence and find confidence in the only place we're meant to, in your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so we got an exciting uh, study today, and uh, we're just going to review where we've been. Sorry, I'm trying to figure out how to play with my own, my new screen toy thing here. Um, so uh, we're, we're, we're talking about finding confidence, and uh, we wanted to note that in previous studies, the first study, we spent most of the time just talking about how we will never find any lasting confidence in ourselves, right? And the reasons for that are very obvious. We are limited, right? We're always going to, there's always going to be something that we don't know, some angle that we don't see, because we're stuck, right? We're only awake for goodness, maybe half or slightly more of the hours every day. So there's things going on that are outside of our ability to see, hear, or know. We can only collect a certain amount of you know, knowledge and, and wisdom and insight in the course of a lifetime. And so our limitations are going to constantly prove that we're not worthy of confidence, uh, or certainly not self-confidence. But we didn't find it's, it's not just that we're limited, that we're finite. It's also that we're sinful, right? That Something has gone profoundly wrong in humanity such that the uh, good things, the right things, the best things, even the good and right and best things for ourselves don't come naturally to us, giving us all the more reason not to have an overwhelming uh, amount of confidence in ourselves. Next, we find that we are ignorant. In our natural state, we are unable even to amass enough basic knowledge about what the situation we're in and, and what we're meant to be doing here. We rely on other sources to give us that information. That's why we come to Bible study. And finally, we find, and you might find this the least exciting or, or maybe the most pessimistic, but we're doomed. You are doomed. I'm sorry to say, if it comes down to you and your physical resources or me and my physical resources, we are all ultimately moving towards lessening abilities, greater levels of decay, uh, dimming sight and dimming hearing, and ultimately physical death. I uh, don't mean to bring you down. But this is the reality, is that you might be on the top of your game, you might be the most powerful person in the world at, the, at one moment, but it will only be for those limited moments. And eventually, time will catch up. And even if you've had a good run at a certain point, or several certain points, that you'll finally wind up having run out of resources. And you will have to, and only have the choice to, embrace your doom. And so what we, the point we made in our first week and then reiterated in our second is that potentially the most important step in living this life with confidence is finding out where not to put our confidence. 
And so we looked at and, and examined the idea, the worldly idea of just fake it till you make it. Pretend like it. Just act as if you have confidence, and then maybe the confidence will follow. And we saw that that level of dishonesty is both a little disgusting to us if we have any moral backbone to it uh, and any right relationship with reality, but it's also incredibly destructive, right? It's destructive because it is built upon something that cannot ultimately be um, cannot ultimately be confirmed. So God is the only thing, the only place where it makes any logical sense to put your confidence. Confidence in God is the final uh, should, that's, uh, part of this, and that's what we looked at uh, in last week's lesson. We saw that when it came to putting confidence in ourselves, we had all these limitations. We had sinfulness. We had uh, lack of wisdom, lack of knowledge. We had uh, a guarantee of reduced ability until we finally face our own death. And God has none of those limitations. God is perfectly, uh, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly loving. He is the only possible place that we should ever even think about putting our confidence logically. But we do have a problem, and that is that, well, we can be perfectly confident in God. When we look at his character, the only thing that we should be perfectly confident of is that he will destroy us. We are, as we said, sinful and unfit to stand in the presence of a holy God. And therefore, we must, we must, we must, we must find a way in which we can have confidence in God. And so tonight's message is finding confidence, confidence at the cross. Now, the primary reason why Christians live without confidence is because we have not considered what it means to find our confidence in Christ. I want to say that again. It's the premise of tonight's talk. The primary reason why Christians live without confidence in this world is because we have not considered what it means to find our confidence in the cross of Jesus Christ alone. We will always live without confidence in such times as we are trying to find it somewhere else whether in ourself and our adequacy and our ability or in some other system, whether that be a governmental system, an educational system, or some sort of uh, employer, another person, such as a husband or a wife, or uh, perhaps a family member or even a dear, very dear friend, you will ultimately not uh, find a way to live with absolute confidence because in, at the end, all of those things will either wind up actually being against you or will fail you because of their limitations, right? And so, as believers, we need to learn what it means to go through day-to-day -day life in constant and mindful uh, confidence in what it means and what, and what we've uh, been given at the cross of Jesus Christ. So, <clears throat> as we look at confidence in, in the cross, we're going to start with the book of Ephesians. Will you please turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going we're gonna to survey quite a bit of Scripture tonight because I want us to, and hopefully familiar Scripture to you, but the, there's a reason for it. And the reason is, is that it's something that we've studied and learned in our study in Peter. And is that the answer for any question, the first place that I hope we all look is to the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying there, there, are, some, there, there are some places where that answer, well, the, that the cross of Jesus Christ won't provide an answer. You're really struggling with a uh, problem on a math 
homework or on a test in sociology, you might not, you know, say Jesus is always the answer because you'll probably get it wrong because it's probably not to that question. However, we want to follow this pattern of scripture of constantly reporting to the word of God and to God's uh, final provision for us in Christ and learn what that looks like. And then as we consider what it means to live with confidence in a world that is shaking and spinning seemingly entirely out of control, in a world wherein there are uh, so many unknown factors and so many things to scare us or even use to scare or frighten us, we can say, how can we live with confidence in this? And I believe the answer is going to be always drawing our eyes back to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's uh, see how that works out, how that premise works out for us. Starting with uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It says, And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as... The others. So, starts off, and you. Now, we want to put ourselves in context here in this passage because it's very important. Paul had just spent the entire previous chapter, preceding chapter, up to the up to the very last verse, telling them how amazing their position in Christ was, how mind-blowingly, shockingly wonderful what God gave us in our position in Christ. That's going to be the study or the subject of our next studies in this series, so we won't uh, worry too much about that. But I want to note that he then re- pulls back hard on the reins because. He needs to remind them, and thus we need to be reminded, that while God has saved us and God has provided everything that we need for life and godliness, and and we'll never come to the end of the unfathomable riches of grace given to us in Christ Jesus, it wasn't something that we earned, and it was never something that we deserved. So he's kind of pulling back hard on the reins and going, yes, you are amazing in Christ and in Christ alone. But it was never about what you brought to the equation. And so he says, and you, he, and then we have he made alive, which probably inserted into uh, um, later copies and texts uh, borrowed from a previous page or maybe a gloss. So uh, when the scriptures were being uh, copied by hand, right, through most of church history, it was very common for them to uh, write pieces of commentary along the side, right? Just like you would make notes in your Bible. And with the book Bible being as valuable as it was, that wouldn't be uncommon. And sometimes those notes would get copied into the text, uh, sometimes. So in our older texts, uh, we have this this phrase, he made alive, is not in there. But uh, in the Textus Receptus, we do see it in certain uh, very reliable, but later copies. So we think that's probably an addition. It doesn't change the meaning of the, of the verse at all, just like any of these variances in the text that we see. Um, in fact, we see that it probably, the text actually makes more sense without it in terms of it's not jumping to spoil the surprise. So, and you who were once dead in trespasses and sins. Now, this is an important uh, point that we make, is that the natural state of a human born into this world is sinful and therefore dead or separated from God the Father. 
And we're actually given an identification here. We are identified with our trespasses, that's being in the wrong place, and our sins, that's the wrong things that we do. So we are dead, we're separated from God. Now dead doesn't mean unresponsive or an inability to respond. Death in scripture means a lack of connection to the life-giving source, God. So we were separated from God, we were separated from Christ, and we were identified with, or we were found in, positionally in our trespasses and sins, uh, in which you once walked. Now this is about your manner of life. He's saying every day of our lives, apart from Christ, we walked according to a couple things, according to the course of this world. This is the first enemy of the believer. The world system will constantly try to coax and cajole us into thinking that it has some good insight on how to live. Put confidence in our worldly science, in our worldly, what we've learned, in our government systems, in whatever it is. The world is trying to constantly tease and coax you into thinking that you can put confidence in that world system. And he says, you are just like everybody else. We are all in that system, forced to walk according to the course of this world. And then according to the prince of the power of the air. This is a title for Satan. Satan is free and loose in this world. There is a spiritual war going on about us, raging on at every single moment. And for anyone who is not a believer, they are at best a pawn in the hands of the deceiver, the great deceiver, or the prince of the power of the air. There's a wonderful uh, movie called The Matrix and then two terrible ones after that, but the first one was really profound. I mean, some people like the second and third, I just, I thought they were dumb. The first one though was really profound because they were all going into this computer program uh, in order to try to redeem people who were being used by the robots as batteries. This is difficult to get a good synopsis. Have you all seen the movie? I hope you have. If you haven't, you're going nowhere on this illustration. It's going to be okay, though. Essentially, they have to go into a computer program to try to convince people that they're, um, that they're enslaved by this computer system, for lack of a better term. And one of the things that they point out is that anyone who's connected to that computer system, until they're freed from it, they have the possibility of being used by the system to get at the free people. It's the exact same thing with us. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your eyes have been opened and you see now the uh, nefarious plans of the world, the plans and the designs of the enemy of, of, of Satan, and you are no longer blinded to it, but you have to remember that you once were. That apart from what Jesus did, we would be no better off than any other person on earth. So Paul's reminding them, you, you, just like everyone else, were a slave to, or you lived according to the course of this world. You were a slave to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit of disobedience. Uh, sorry, this is a clarifier on the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom we also once conducted ourselves and our final enemy in the lust of the flesh. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So, our position before God outside of Jesus Christ is one of absolute slavery and hopelessness. There is no opportunity for us to experience any kind of truth or life apart from what has been given. So, do you see how this fits with our theme? Again, you have no truth within yourself. We've got this really disturbing phrase that oftentimes comes out, he's living his truth or she's living her truth. Please never, ever, ever say that and don't let other people get away with that nonsense either. There is no individual or subjective truth. The truth is 
objective, and it is ultimately found in the person of Jesus Christ. Confirmable, substantiatable, and there is no sense in which there's an individualized truth for each, and each person. So that's where Paul has us, in that same place that we talked about. No reason for any confidence in yourself, right? Now we're going to see what happens. What happens next is what God did. Here's verse 4. It says, but God. Now this is a big and important statement, right? You got that we've talked about before about the various conjunctions in Greek. There's strong conjunctions that like day, it's like a soft. Even sometimes chi can be brought across but. Um, but the idea being a, a gentle, you know, change. Um, you know, we might say, I'm not going to have a hamburger for dinner. But instead, soft conjunction, I'm going to have hot dogs, right? I'm still eating. Now, this Allah, this strong but is, I am not going to have a hamburger for dinner, but instead I'm going skydiving, right? Something entirely different. And that's the idea, is that that was our state, but God came in with something dramatic and huge and says, but God reached into our helplessness, who is rich in mercy, reading again, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Jesus. Okay. It's time to do a quick Bible check. Make sure you've got yours open. Make sure you're looking at it and find out what we do in this situation. Okay? We talked about, again, in 1 through 3, our, our destitute, our difficult situation, the fact that we were hopeless and helpless, that we were enslaved to the world, to the flesh, to the devil, that we were deceived. And then, but God jumps in here, and then we find that he's the actor the rest of the time. He, in character, is rich in mercy. We talked about being able to trust in God because of who he is. And who he is is rich in mercy. And he can be rich in mercy because he alone is unlimited in his ability to provide. So he's rich in mercy because of his great love. So then we find out his motivation. The motivation of God was that he looked down and he didn't see something he could get out of us, right? Very frequently, people look at another person and we say, they say, oh, well, you know, he seems like a good guy. I could probably take advantage of that situation. We could both benefit from this in some way. But that's not the picture at all. God wasn't motivated by some sort of mutual benefit that he could get out of saving you. It was because of his internal character as love, his perfect loving character that he was motivated to do this. In other words, his innate desire to go and seek after the best good of the loved one, that's you, regardless of the cost. God and God alone is capable of this kind of love because again, he never runs out, as we saw last week, of ability. He never runs short and he never, has, he never changes in his character. He never develops in any way. Because his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead, so here's our part, we're dead, right? And he makes us alive together with Christ. Does he say that we made ourselves alive together? Nope. He did that. We were dead. We were separated from him. He together, uh, he, he brought us, it's actually one big beautiful compound word using the uh, 
using the prefix soon, which means together. So there's, there's a bunch of soons in this, uh, in this passage where it's he together this, he together that. So when Jesus Christ was made alive from the dead, you were made alive with him. When Jesus Christ was raised up from the dead, you were raised up with him. When Jesus Christ was seated in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father, you were with him in that by the power and the will of God. And then we get our part. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved. How did you receive that grace? Through faith. The only thing that we bring to this equation is need and the willingness to trust Jesus Christ's provision for us. It is a statement of no confidence in ourselves and utter confidence in the God of the universe. When we understand what God did for us, that is what enables us to take and put our trust in him and in him alone. We receive that by faith. He says, it is the, oh, sorry, and, this, and that is not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Now that here, I, I won't bore you with all the Greek details, but that is a, um, is a pronoun. It refers back to something. Um, it could refer back to the faith being a gift, the grace being a gift, or the salvation being a gift. Grace is by nature a gift. But the fortunate thing is that Greek pronouns have gender. So it can't refer to faith, which is feminine. It can't refer to grace. It can only refer to the salvation. So the gift of God... Is the thing that's not of yourself is the salvation of God. You could not work for it. You could not earn it. In fact, coming to salvation appears to be, from a biblical perspective, understanding that I could not do it myself. I needed you. I need to put my confidence in Jesus Christ alone. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. We have no reason to boast in ourselves. For we are his workmanship. Finally, uh, verse 10 shows us what this looks like. You are, at that point, his workmanship. This uh, word poema is his craft, his perfect masterpiece. You are his masterpiece recreated in Christ and in, in the work in Christ. Which God, uh, sorry, and created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we see... Good works could never save us. There's nothing to boast of, but we are redeemed. And the end of that will be that we will bring forth, as we walk in a healthy uh, walk with Christ, we will bring forth good works. Good works could never save us. They could never prove that we were saved. There's plenty of people out there doing good works who aren't saved. So if we look at people's good works and say, like the uh, proverbial fruit inspector, and say, well, I don't know, I see good works, they're probably saved. And there's a lot of people who will be going to hell because of your terrible theology. Good works don't prove a salvation. However, they do grow forth from a healthy relationship with Christ. Now, this is a, oftentimes, a, I think, a slightly misunderstood uh, passage in terms of the fact that people talk about this or think about these good works, says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so sometimes people get the impression that God like set up little good works for you to go, like little traps and triggers throughout your day. That's pretty absurd. I'm going to be very frank. 
Here are the good works that God intended that you would walk in them. It is the very character of Christ lived out within the life of the believer, set out before the foundation of the world as to what a believer would be redeemed into. So these good works that you will walk in them aren't like divine appointments per se. They are simply the character of Christ flowing out through you naturally because of your abiding in Christ day and night, moment by moment, throughout the rest of your life prepared beforehand, that you should walk in them. Those types of things, the character and the life of Christ within you. So, as we look at this passage, hopefully we see our three points made very, very plain. There is no call at any point for us to have confidence in ourselves. Harkening back to our first study, it's fine to have confidence in your ability to play an instrument because you've practiced hard and you've, you've proven yourself to be true. That, that's fine. And so then you can be confident in that instrument, instrument or that skill, that sport, whatever it is that you're doing. We're talking that's the small c confidence. But there is no call for uppercase c true confidence in life, which is found within ourselves. One, two, God is worthy of all of our confidence and trust in his character and his intent and in his love. And three, we walk by faith in that, and that is what allows us to live in confidence. So why is it that we struggle sometimes to be confident in any given situation? We lose sight. Mercy, that's the enemy's whole scheme. That's his thing. Don't get me wrong, there might come a point where, uh, again, and there are, uh, might come a point, there are, there are Christians being martyred and brought to their deaths constantly throughout church history, for sure. So the enemy will make attacks on us of a physical nature, and we're not immune to that, not even here in America. But the primary station or level of attack that the enemy makes on us is on your mind. He's trying to distract you trying to dissipate you, trying to confuse you, trying to get us woozy and, 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 un, uh, and veiled, if you like, and veiled so that we don't recognize that our confidence is in Christ, trying to trick us into, trying, into uh, manifesting confidence on our own. But I wouldn't leave you with just one passage. No, no, no. This is the theme of Scripture this is something that we couldn't uh, even so much as imagine uh, overlooking in Scripture. And so we're going to see that it actually belongs in a handful of places. How, how can you read that? Can you read that okay? All right, read along with me. It says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. There's a lot of wonderful con uh, concepts here uh, in this passage, but we want to note again what we pointed out last week. We, we in this situation, us, we are without strength. That's what we bring to the equation. No strength. We are ungodly. That means falling short of God's character. We are not righteous nor good by implication. 
We are sinners. We are ones who perpetually and habitually miss the mark for which we were intended. Uh, intended. And we were objects of wrath, as we saw in the previous passage. And yet, we see that in Christ, we have a new word attached to us. And that is that we are justified. Now think about this word justified. We'll very frequently... Um, Try to justify our actions, right? You do something that you know is wrong or foolish or silly, and then you try to justify it, right? Like, you know, you're, you're driving along, and you, you cut someone off by accident and say, well, he shouldn't have been so close to me after all, right? You know you cut him off. And yet, for some reason, we, we like try to talk ourselves down as if what we did wasn't quite so bad. Our ju- attempts at justifying our actions are ridiculous, are, are never, whoops, never there. Careful. See what we can do here. Bring this back. So, we are uh, being declared righteous in in this justification in Romans chapter 5. We are being declared righteous not because of our own works, right? There's two ways in which you could be be declared righteous. You could be tried. So, we thought he was guilty, but he was innocent. He's declared righteous. He's actually good. He's fine. But that's not what's going on here. Here, we are being given a permanent spiritual decision on the basis of Christ's work at the cross. And this permanent judicial decision is is that if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you are declared righteous before the God of the universe. Now, you were still wrong to cut that guy off in traffic. That's a bummer. There's a lot of actions that we're in. We're going to continue to fail and falter. We're going to fall short But our ultimate identification between us and God is that you're declared righteous, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done and has been imputed to you. So we see at the cross, the sin of the believer is imputed onto the cross of Jesus Christ and they're paid for. And the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to your account. And therefore, you can look at any situation, any place, any time, any moment of this life and say, whatever happens, I am absolutely confident and secure that I have been declared righteous before God for all of eternity. No failure, no, nor any uh, force on earth could ever take what has been given to me in Jesus Christ. And I never, you never again need to walk without confidence in this world. Because it's not in yourself. It's in the almighty, all-powerful Son of God. Christ's righteousness imputed to us at the moment of belief. So if we're wandering around and wondering if we're saved today, if we're wandering around and wondering if we lost our salvation, then we just haven't understood that our confidence is meant to be in Christ. And we're still trying to find some reason to be confident in ourselves, whether it's that 1% that we bring to the equation or trying to prove our salvation or trying to give evidence where it's all garbage and it will all ultimately leave us empty, hollow. Because we aren't meant to find our confidence even in that, our ability to bring 1% to the equation. Our confidence is in Christ and Christ alone. And so we're going to look back to Isaiah 53, which of course we read at our introduction. We won't um, read it again. 
I mean, we will rather. I'll read it to you again because I didn't put it up on the screen twice. That's what I mean to say. Isaiah 53, written 600 years before the Lord Jesus Christ watched, uh, walked onto this earthly scene. It says, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, his all, of us all. Of course, the chapter goes on and enforces the point. But I think we've got what we need for this evening's purposes. Where were we? We were sheep gone astray. We had turned to our own way. We were ignorant and blind to the uh, Savior that God had provided for us because we were too busy looking at the outside things. We were too busy looking for the, uh, the handsome and attractive superhero, and we missed him. We overlooked him. Again, we see ourselves blind and steeped in our own sin and failure. And Jesus Christ came and suffered for us. I want to note, this wasn't a last-minute change of plans. When Jesus Christ went up on the cross, he did so willingly, knowing exactly every sin that you would commit before you trusted him, while you were trusting him, and after you were home, or after you had lived as a Christian for 50 years. He knew every sin that would be committed, and he went to the cross to pay for each and every one. He knew it. He knew that every blow that he took, every whip mark that stained his royal back, and as the nails pierced his hands, that he was undergoing all of that to pay for your sin and my sin so that he could be the Savior and he could be glorified. He did this at the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, when we try to put confidence in ourselves and live by confidence in anything else, we simply undervalue or underestimate the value of Christ's payment for us. Are you ever familiar with the, the, it's kind of a business term of a sunk cost? It's when you've invested so much into this cause and even though you've invested more than it's actually worth at this point you may as well invest more in it just to get it done it's a sunk cost you've already lost enough on it so you're just going to keep losing more you're a sunk cost for christ not very optimistic i, I recognize but it's true he has too much invested in you as a believer to see you fail and so you won't Oh, you'll have bad days. We might even uh, blow it so frequently and so much and so intentionally that he calls us home to be with him. But ultimately, you will be conformed to the image of his son. You will glorify him, not because of your goodness, but because of his goodness. We're going to look at um, 
one final major passage tonight, and that'll be in Hebrews. So let's go to Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. I love this verse because it does highlight the idea of confidence, and it's important to our study. So we're looking at Hebrews chapter 4, 15 through 16. And they read as follows. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, we, we do actually do have a cultural idea. It's, very, it's somewhat different. But if you wanted to approach the president, you wouldn't just do it casually, right? Or you would be casually shot by a man in a nice black suit. You need, uh, uh, world leaders of pretty much every age needed to look to their own protection and their own safety. And so it was in any ancient kingdom, whether it was, again, Caesar or Herod or anyone else, you wouldn't just walk up into their presence. You had to approach with at least a certain amount of trepidation, unless you were so well known to the king that you could do so. And when we think about our place be- apart from Christ before God, we should be supremely underconfident, should we not? We brought nothing but sin and failure. We continually sin. In fact, we're going to see that this verse is actually talking about, that, or these verses rather, are actually talking about the times in which we are sinful. That very sin that uh, offends the righteousness of God, the very sin which he must in his justice punish and destroy, that very sin which put his son on the cross to die. We should be underconfident, but we're told that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, specifically in our time of need. Now, oftentimes we might think that this is our time of need, like some sort of emotional need or sorrow or grief or challenge, and that's true. We can approach with confidence, but this is actually about something quite different. This is about how you can approach the throne of grace with confidence in the time when you have failed, fallen down, sinned, and absolutely fallen short, just as the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews had. And uh, the writer of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, is reminding them, hey, come on. Jesus Christ underwent all this for you. He went, underwent every uh, temptation and trial and difficulty, was without sin, sympathizes with you in your weaknesses, and now you can approach him on your worst day. You see, sometimes we have this, this problem in that we try to have, put confidence in ourselves. And so we sin, we blow it, we fail, and we feel like, oh, the Lord's, I, I've let the Lord down. Uh, he'll never talk to me again. And we kind of apply what I like to call wife rules. If you blow it with your <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. If you blow it with your wife, sometimes it's best to give her a little bit of time to cool down. It probably applies to husbands too, but I don't have any husbands. I just have one wife. And I've found at times when I've really blown it that there's a good space in our world for me to go somewhere else while she calms down and then come back and apologize. However, that's because husbands and wives, humans in general, right, are, we're, 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 we get fussed up with our emotions. But God doesn't ever. 
You see, even in your greatest rebellion as a Christian, as you live through this Christian life, even in your harshest, most terrifying, awful sin, God still sees you as his redeemed child. He still sees you as the justified one, justified by the work, the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, no matter how uh, badly you feel that you've fallen short, no matter how badly you fail, you can approach the throne of grace confidently. I mean, imagine that for a moment. Because this uh, the illustration is not an overstatement at all. If you imagine a, uh, a man who is, has been involved and been in the kingdom, maybe been in government and found out to be corrupt. And he's been corrupt and he's been stealing money from the treasury. And then he runs away and he starts robbing and looting and murdering uh, all the king's uh, soldiers and men and, and doing all sorts of nefarious things. The minute he walks into the throne room, he can expect justly only one thing. And that is his own punishment, probably, of death. And so that's how amazing this picture is that the author of Hebrews is painting for us. Not only can you walk into the presence of God, but you can walk with confidence. And it's not confidence in yourself, how special you are, how wonderful you are, and how God just has to uh, love you. But it's because of his Uh, His perfect provision for us in Jesus Christ and the absolute perfection of his character and ability. That's why you can walk in confidence. That should give you a boldness to always approach God in your time of need and also a stern reminder of why we should never choose to walk in sin. So, we talk about living with confidence. Confidence starts at the cross. The cross secures your past. You are justified. You are declared righteous, not by what you have done. And so what you have, what you have done or what you will do cannot undo it. Your past is secured and completely overwritten by the righteous work of Jesus Christ. The cross secures your present. You remain secure every day and every moment after which you've trusted in Jesus Christ because he has placed his very name on you. He has placed his reputation and hung it all on his ability to save you, to forgive you and to bring you into that ultimate place where the cross secures your future and you will be with Christ forever. And at the end of it all, You will be rewarded for what you allowed Christ to do through you. And you will take that reward and you will cast it down at the feet of him who did it in you. There is nothing in this world that can shake the confidence that we're meant to have in Christ. The confidence we're meant to have in his provision. We're going to talk about how we live in the day-to-day and how our uh, position and condition, our Christian growth, grow, uh, come forth from that. But this is the point. You will never live and walk in the confidence in which you were meant to live and walk unless you understand what Jesus Christ did for you at the cross. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this reality from your word. It's so easy for us to try to justify ourselves, to try to find some sense 
of confidence in our own abilities, in our own looks, in our own wealth, in our own influence, in our own power, in our own popularity, in our own systems, political or financial or otherwise. Father, we're trying to find confidence in all the wrong places. Thank you, O Lord, that you have given us your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have revealed your character to us. Thank you that you have given us the only legitimate, reasonable, and justified source of confidence in your Son, Jesus Christ. May we live in his grace and love with each passing day. In the matchless name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.